This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, how much do you want to know about the secrets in your DNA? It took scientists 13 years to learn how to sequence the first human genome. But these days, it can be done in a matter of hours. That's led to huge advances in genetic medicine and calls to expand the number of genetic conditions parents should be screened for before they conceive. Today, the Health Report examines this crossroads of genetics and health. With more, here's producer David Murray. That's an Evie one. Mm. Evie is a vivacious, bubbly, strong-willed, happy-go-lucky little girl. Natasha Wagner lives on a dairy farm at Jancourt East in Victoria's Western District. There's a lot of open space, which is good considering she's got seven kids, four with her current husband, and the baby of the family is seven-year-old Evie. I'm 19, so I might just have a hot chocolate. As a three-year-old, I would take her with me to check the cows. It didn't matter if she was tired, she was coming with me, um, uh, to the point that you know she would be falling asleep on the bike with me. She would jump in the pen with the calves when they're being fed and they'd be all milling around her, trying to suck on her coat or her fingers. She just doesn't want to miss out on anything. <laughs> From the outside, Evie was a perfectly normal little kid. But on the inside, buried in the approximately 3 billion letters of DNA that make up her genome, there was a time bomb. And in early 2019, that bomb started ticking. It started with one or two blood noses, and it just came out of nowhere. And then being the youngest of seven, I thought, oh, well, maybe you've picked your nose. It was a hot day, so I thought, well, maybe it's the hot weather and she'd been running around. They kind of got a little bit more frequent. There was one episode where her blood nose just wouldn't stop. It was about five minutes, and I rang the hospital, and they said, pop an ice pack on the back of her neck, and if it doesn't stop, you know, within another 10 minutes, bring her in. Well, we live 20 minutes away from the hospital, but the ice pack did work. Bloody noses aren't uncommon with young kids, but they weren't the only warning signs. At the same time, she didn't want to get up in the morning. She'd say, I don't want to go to school. And I thought, oh, here we go. We're going to play that one because all the other kids had done the I don't want to go to school. Then, yeah, she got fussy with her eating, but every kid goes through that fussy stage where I don't want to eat what you're cooking me for tea, Mum. I want a peanut butter sandwich. That's sort of how she was. And, yeah, then 18th of... March, around that time, she was a flower girl and I looked at her tummy and I said, gee, your tummy's swollen. So I rubbed her tummy and I thought, oh, this just doesn't feel right. The swelling did go down and that's the only signs and symptoms. But looking back, you can see a little timeline of it all happening. Nosebleeds, being tired, having stomach problems, they're all things that pretty much every kid will have at some point or another. What did you make of them? I just thought they were everyday normal things that, you know, I mean, the other kids had had those things happen to them at different times. And even at the hospital, they said, you know, no one would have picked it up from the vague symptoms that she did have. Eventually, that time bomb in Evie's DNA, it went off. I'd flown out of Australia to India, landed on the Tuesday, and my daughter rang on the 
Friday and said, Mum, Evie's yellow. Her eyes are yellow. Her scalp's yellow. She's yellow from top to toe. And I just went, oh, my goodness, take her to the doctor right now. Evie ended up at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. It was clear that something was very wrong with her liver. The jaundice was a telltale sign the organ was not doing its job to filter out red blood cells. But still, the doctors and specialists couldn't confirm the underlying cause. I actually thought I would come home and she would be really, um, you know how kids miss their mum and they want their mum. I thought she would be excited to see me, but she was not. She couldn't walk. Earlier in the day, had had a nasal gastric tube put in. She was lethargic. Um, When I brushed her hair, she used to scream, ouch, that hurts, don't touch me. Whereas her hair was this matted mass and she just sat, laid there, sat there in a chair and it was falling out as I was brushing it. It was it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was just, I was beside myself. Evie was getting sicker and sicker. She ended up in the ICU. Her liver was failing, but they couldn't work out why. They thought it might be genetic, a faulty gene or something inherited from one of her parents. The doctors talked about a transplant. Without a proper diagnosis, they couldn't be sure it would be enough to make her well again. Liver failure in a very young child is very unusual. Dr Zornitsa Stark is a clinical geneticist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Evie was a six-year-old little girl who was previously completely well and was admitted to the Royal Children's Hospital unexpectedly with severe liver failure. So finding a cause is important because it allows the medical team then to decide whether something like a liver transplant may be helpful. Dr Stark was running a study at the Royal Children's Hospital supported by Australian Genomics. She was evaluating whether new genetic technologies could play a role in Australian hospitals to help diagnose sick kids like Evie. Traditionally, it has taken something like four or five years to um, diagnose a rare genetic condition. Four or five years. Four or five years. That's what people often talk about as a diagnostic odyssey. There's been a huge change in the way that we diagnose genetic conditions over the past five years because we now have testing available to us that is able to examine all of the genetic material in a single test. But the turnaround time is usually still three to six months. If you have a baby or a child who's critically unwell, that sort of turnaround time is still too slow to really help. Which is where ultra-rapid genomic sequencing comes in. Essentially, the technology is the same as a test that gives you a result in a couple of weeks or months. But Dr Stark was trialling a system that could do it in days. Because Evie's doctors already suspected a genetic condition, she was a perfect candidate for the study. Blood samples were taken from both her and her parents, and a couple of days later, the results came back. I've got the results for Evie's here. Uh, Interpretation. This patient is heterozygous for two pathogenic variants of the ATP7B gene homogenous and compound heterozygous pathogenic variant in this gene are associated with autosomal recessive Wilson's disease. So, yeah. Wilson's disease is a rare genetic condition that causes copper to accumulate in organs like the brain and liver. 
It's a recessive condition, which means for Evie to have it, she needed to inherit the gene for Wilson's from both of her parents. Neither of them had any idea they were carriers. But now they knew what was making Evie so sick, her doctors were also confident they knew how to treat it. Evie was booked in for a liver transplant. Um, I know walking in there at three o'clock in the morning after she had the transplant, it was just so surreal. She was, um, sorry. It was like, has this, um, is this transplant successful? I hope it has. Um, the room was silent except for the machines beeping away in the background and the nurses talking. Um, it was almost like, can I touch her? You know, but just knowing that she was there and alive was just so amazing. Evie has since made what is pretty much a full recovery. She's already back to swimming and jumping on trampolines. She still carries the genes for Wilson's, but now that her family know it's there, they can take steps to manage the amount of copper in her diet. I mean, you wouldn't even know she'd had a liver transplant unless you saw her, say, in a bikini and saw the scar on her tummy. She's just like every other normal eight-year-old little girl and is so happy... For Evie and her family, it's a fairy tale outcome, but it also wasn't the norm. Twelve hospitals took part in the study, with ultra-rapid genome sequencing carried out on more than 100 critically ill children and infants. In the majority of cases, it led to a genetic diagnosis where there wasn't one before. And it was fast. Tests sometimes were being turned around in as little as 48 hours. But the nature of genetic conditions, and the lack of treatments for many of them, meant that a diagnosis just wasn't always able to save lives. So the outcome occasionally was that there was a specific treatment that made a dramatic difference to the child's life and life expectancy. For most children, it simply meant that they had avoided a whole lot of invasive and painful procedures such as tissue biopsies. And for some children, it meant that um, the families and the treating teams realised that the condition was going to be severely disabling and life-limiting, and they made the difficult decision to place a greater emphasis on decreasing unnecessary suffering and spending quality time with the child. So that may mean stopping intensive care interventions, spending some time with the baby or child. That sometimes means just a few hours outside the hospital in the park, uh, or sometimes it means having a few extra months at home. And what have families told the study about the value of that diagnosis, even if it wasn't a diagnosis which offered a clear path to a treatment which would either extend life or allow a child to develop and go on and live a normal life? All the families told us that it was extremely important to them that the results were delivered quickly and they didn't have to live with anxiety and uncertainty for any longer they told us how important it was for them that their child did not suffer unnecessarily and that they were able to have some time with their child that was free from medical intervention and procedures. Right now, the majority of Australian families with critically ill children who might have a genetic condition 
don't have the option of an ultra-rapid diagnosis. The sequencing technology is here, it's more that the systems just aren't in place to make it available for everyone who would need it. However, Dr Stark is hopeful that could soon change. It has been said that generally it takes 17 years to implement an innovation in healthcare and that would clearly be too long. I think the evidence for diagnostic and clinical utility of rapid genomic testing has been reproduced around many children's hospitals around the world. So really I would like to see it become standard of care within the next couple of years. But even then, sequencing would likely only be available for the most critical cases, children or infants who are obviously sick and need a diagnosis right away. Genetic conditions are individually very rare, but put them all together and that starts to change. One figure estimates they impact around 1 in 17 Australians, and they're not always obvious. People can go for years before the genes start to really cause problems. So what about all those children like Evie, adults as well, carrying time bombs in their DNA? I'm really excited about the potential for what we're calling preventive genomics. Professor Robert Green is a geneticist at Harvard Medical School in Boston. He leads a project that goes a step further than the ultra-rapid screening being trialled in Australia. Instead of only testing the most critically ill children, the ones that are either born sick or need a diagnosis right away, he's working towards giving every parent a glimpse into their child's genetic future. You know, it's really an old idea. Ever since people started sequencing the human genome, there's been this idea, this concept, this vision that you might be able to sequence newborn babies and kind of develop a blueprint of what might go wrong with them health-wise throughout their entire life. And if you could do that, you could then, you know, look ahead in this blueprint and uh, actually avoid some of these diseases and surveil them if necessary to catch them early. But it's been hampered by a lot of things. There has been a high cost to sequencing, which has dramatically come down over the last few years. Secondly, there's been a lot of confusion about when you've got these changes in DNA, can you really distinguish which ones are dangerous and which ones are harmless? And then there's been a lot of ethical questions. Is it really right to test a baby who can obviously not give you consent for diseases that that baby might encounter later in their life. So all of these things have stood in the way of actually implementing this vision of sequencing newborns. The BabySeq project is an effort to confront some of these challenges. It's a randomised trial of genome sequencing in newborns funded by the US National Institutes of Health. In many countries, newborn babies are already put through some standard genetic testing, that's the heel stick test you might have seen done at a hospital in Australia. But it's extremely limited and only looks for a small number of the most common genetic conditions. In BabySeq, they wanted to look for everything. And almost 10% of the children tested in the first phase of the project had a genetic risk of childhood onset disease. A further 4% had gene variants for conditions that could arise later in life. Genes like BRCA2b which carries an increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer, or CD46, linked to atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, which impacts levels of red blood cells and impairs the ability of the kidneys to get rid of waste from the body. Sometimes there wasn't much parents could do with the information. Changing diet wouldn't help children born with gene variants linked to hearing loss. But in other cases, knowing about a genetic risk came with options for reducing it. And it's what parents do with this information 
and how they react to knowing the genetic destiny of their newborn child that Professor Green is most interested in. One of the narratives that has pervaded discussions about genetics is that this information is going to be psychologically devastating to people. If you tell parents that their perfect newborn baby infant is suddenly at risk for a future heart disease or a future skin disease or some sort of future cancer, it's going to ruin your life psychologically. We uncovered a lot of dangerous mutations and we disclosed that information to the family members of the infants. And these people prove themselves to be quite resilient. Were they sometimes upset to learn this information? Absolutely. But we could show in comparison to the control groups that in fact, any distress was mild, it was transient, and people adjusted extremely well. This narrative that genetic information is somehow going to be psychologically catastrophic is simply wrong. It's a response echoed by the experience of parents who took part in the ultra-rapid sequencing study in Australian hospitals. Surveys with families found that although thoughts on the benefits of testing were mixed, the vast majority of families had no regrets about taking part. While Dr Zornitsa Stark sees the benefits in extending screening to all newborns, she says there are reasons why her study isn't going in that direction. This type of testing is still very resource intensive and doing it with this turnaround time at the moment is extremely resource intensive. So at the moment, genomic sequencing is really used for children that already have symptoms of a genetic condition. But as the cost of the sequencing decreases and our ability to interpret the data also improves, there's definitely a case that's been made to have this testing performed at birth as part of newborn screening and then having the genetic information stored that can be interrogated throughout life, either in a preventative sort of way or as medical questions arise. Professor Green believes that day might be closer than people realise. Costs associated with genetic screening are continuing to fall, and limiting the number of conditions screened could actually bring it into reach. Sequencing a newborn infant with genomic technology is still thousands of dollars per baby. But instead of looking for, let's say, 5,000 genes, you could imagine that you look for 100 genes, and you could do that on all newborn babies for, you could imagine, less than $100 maybe less than $50, we will have some strata of society that are going to be sequencing their newborns within five years. Maybe half of the world will be doing it within 10 to 15 years. But there's no doubt in my mind, even if those projections are too aggressive, there's no doubt in my mind that there will come a day when every newborn baby has their genome sequenced as part of the well baby check. No doubt in my mind. In the wake of Evie's transplant, Natasha Wagner had the rest of her children screened for Wilson's disease. As expected, her sons also carry the genes, but they haven't yet started to show symptoms. And while there's no cure, knowing those genes are there means the Wagner family have been able to take some measures to help make sure things stay that way. Evie never had that chance. We could have taken the precautions. We could have put her on a special copper-free diet, changed all our water system, foods that we could have avoided in her diet. She may not have needed a liver transplant. She may not have got to that point. I would have loved to have known.
Even if Evie was screened at birth, the genes for Wilson's disease would have still been in her genome, still there threatening her life. Which is why another major genomics project being run in Australia is looking to provide parents with information about their child's genetic risk before they're even conceived. We sort of noticed that he was missing the milestones at around uh, 16 to 18 months. This is Sabine Ramjan. She's talking about her younger brother, who is now an adult but lives with a severe intellectual disability. He's an absolute blessing to have around. He's a very happy boy. Um, But obviously there's a lot of work required. He's got the mentality of a 16-month-old. Things like sort of showering, feeding, making sure that there are ground-up meals that are palatable for him to chew. There's a lot of work with it. Sabine made an early decision that a child of her own wasn't going to be part of her future. Probably it was early, around 14 years old. I saw what my parents had to go through. Um, I know that with my mother, there was a lot of grief on her part, thinking that it possibly something that she had done. And that kind of grief does hurt quite severely. I didn't want to fall pregnant and be sitting there worried the entire time. Is everything going to be okay? Sabine's family had an idea that her brother's condition might have been genetic, but for most of her childhood, they were never sure. Eventually, though, they got their diagnosis. There was a label, a name of letters and numbers, as they are yet to put an official name on it. Sabine says having that name was an amazing moment for her and her family. But more importantly, she discovered the genetic condition responsible for her brother's disability was the result of a random genetic mutation, not something she carried in her own DNA. It made her start thinking about children, but there were other serious genetic risk factors in her family, and neither she or her partner were confident enough to take the next step. Ten years ago, we could screen for two or three genes. Now we can test all 23,000. Professor Martin Delaticki is the co-lead of the Australian Reproductive Carrier Screening Project, also known as Mackenzie's Mission. It's a federally funded research program offering people like Sabine access to genetic screening for a whole host of conditions. The idea is, if you know you carry genes for a particular condition, you can then look at your options to help prevent passing those genes onto a child. In Mackenzie's mission, we have developed a test of about 1,300 genes that underlie about 750 serious childhood onset conditions. We've now screened about 500 couples, uh, although many have not got a result yet. But we know from having offered reproductive screening for conditions like cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy and fragile X syndrome, most couples will take steps to avoid having a child with the condition that they have the increased chance for, be it by IVF and testing embryos or becoming pregnant and testing an established pregnancy. But a negative result isn't necessarily a clear pass. One of the issues in many screening programs is deciding what to screen for, which conditions and which risk factors do people really need to know about and which will just cause unnecessary anxiety. In Mackenzie's mission, 1,300 genes made the list. That's a lot, possibly the most comprehensive list for a program of this kind anywhere in the world. But it still doesn't screen for everything. 
we trawled through approximately 2,500 genes known to underlie autosomal recessive and X-linked recessive conditions. Some easily were chosen to be included or not included, but there was quite a number of genes that were in the grey zone. And based on a series of criteria, we were able to come up with this list. The first thing was if the couple had a child with the two faults for a recessive condition or the X-linked condition, a single fault, could we be confident that a child born with that would have a serious childhood onset condition. That was the first criterion. Secondly, was there enough data to be sure that that gene actually does cause a problem? Because when genes are described, there might only be one family and you can't be absolutely certain. And our overarching principle was that the gene should be for a condition that the average couple would take steps to prevent the birth of a child with that condition. Now, you know, that's clearly a subjective criterion. So there are some conditions that, you know, are much more difficult to decide about than others. Take, for example, uncombable hair syndrome. It usually develops in childhood and leaves you with dry, frizzy hair that is, well, uncombable. But it's not life-limiting. Other conditions left off the list are considerably more serious, though. The genes for what's called non-syndromic deafness, in other words, where there's only deafness and no other associated problems with it, was the group of genes that caused the most discussion. And there was you know, a lot of uh, discussion around it. And ultimately, it was uh, felt that that was uh, not a serious enough condition to be included in the list. I think that this is a, you know, a classic example where two people can uh, differ in their opinion on that. One way of avoiding all of these decisions really is to just screen for everything and then have all the information and leave it up to the people that are receiving it to decide what to do with that. So I think there's two problems with that approach. Firstly, there is good data on a number of conditions where screening has been offered and couples are put in a terrible position where they just don't know what to do with the information and it causes enormous angst and ultimately most people choose not to do anything to prevent the birth of a child and yes there will be couples who would want that but you can't have a perfect test for everyone secondly uh, the amount of work that that will generate in terms of genetic counseling requirements uh, is probably unmanageable at a societal level and so I think that you have to draw a line for those two reasons to limit the conditions that you screen for. Because of the amount of discussion it created, non-syndromic deafness is now being offered as an add-on to the standard screening panel offered by the Carrier Screening Project. Professor Delatiki believes that if people want that test, they'll ask for it. Then it'll be up to them to decide what to do with the results. Which is... What these programs are for, carrier screening, universally sequencing all newborns, even the ultra-rapid diagnosis, all they can provide is information. But that information can be powerful. It likely saved Evie Wagner's life. And for Sabine, who was offered a place in the carrier screening project, it's potentially going to change hers forever. We did do the test and the results came back as very, very low risk. Both me and my fiancé were ecstatic, absolutely ecstatic. I had told myself for so very long that this is not an option for you. 
you you are going to be gambling if you take that option. I now have an option to go down path B. What's the plan now then? Uh, we've actually only last week called up and made two appointments with IVF clinics. This is definitely going ahead. I'm David Murray and you've been listening to The Health Report. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.